0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast, where we bring you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion and the world's deep needs connect. This week on the podcast, I had the privilege of talking to my good friend, Deanna Spangler. She's an Asbury Seminary alum and author of Purchase, Leaving the Sex Trade. Before you listen, I wanna give a trigger warning. So please know that this episode contains content about abuse, pornography, addictions, and the adult sex industry. So if those are triggers for you, or if you're listening with children, you may wanna skip this episode. But Deanna's story is one of redemption, hope, recovery, and freedom. We talk about her healing journey that led her to write Purchase, Leaving the Sex Trade, what her recovery process at Refuge for Women looked like, how she came to Asbury Seminary, and the freedom and forgiveness she has found in her new life in Christ. Let's listen. So Deanna, I am just so grateful that you can be on the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast today So we are friends off the podcast, and so I just find it a real honor to get to sit down with you for the podcast today. So thank you very much. Yes, me too. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I read your book, Purchase, that just came out in October, and reading your story, I knew a little bit of it because we were friends already, Mm -hmm. but I just want to say that I thought telling your story was very brave, and I'm very... I'm very honored, as I already said, to get to talk to you about it today. So, thank you. Yeah. What? Um, why did you write Purchased? Well, Purchase was a project that's probably about
1: seven years in the making. Um, I've kind of been told my whole life, like, I should write a book. I should write a book, and um, I have no problem sharing my experience if it would be beneficial to others. But it was a matter of how how I was going to share the experience and I really needed to get grounded in and who the audience was going to be. And, and once I solidified that, um, I feel like it got – like momentum got going again. And so for me, what happened when I left the sex industry is I got pegged into one of two categories. And one was I was either a victim of human trafficking. And, yes, there's definitely correlations between the sex industry and human trafficking and coercion, manipulation, all of that. Um, But I felt like it wasn't doing justice to some of the human trafficking that people are familiar with. And, and I didn't want to be deceiving in any way. And then the other category is, well, these girls are there by choice. Like they want to be there. So it, I have no problem purchasing their materials. Um, and I really wanted people to see when we make a decision to go into the sex industry, what life looks like that, that makes us think, hmm, this is going to be the best option for my life to survive. And, and I wanted people to get the whole detailed picture of what that choice was
0: derived from.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. Your book released in October, and this podcast mm-hmm. won't air until the spring, but it was the number one bestseller in the study of pornography, um, which is amazing, you know, right? <laughs> that is fun. It was like the next day, everybody was really excited about it. Yeah. And um, Yeah. And it's a really – I mean, I just read it, so it's a really well-thought-out book. And you told your story you. really well. Um, was it scary to tell your story? Um, I think what I was most
1: concerned with – well, there was two things. What I was most concerned with is the other characters in the book, which some of the names I have changed and stuff. Mm-hmm. Because these are, these are experiences based on my perception and my healing journey and, and we don't know where every single person in my story was coming from. And right. while I'm not excusing any behaviors, I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't, like, dishonoring people along the way, but that I told enough of the truth that when girls pick this up and, and read it and say, that's not normal, I, I should talk to somebody about that. And so that was probably the hardest part was figuring out that balance. And then the other hard part was you know there were times where i would just pick it up and i was just so disgusted with my life mm. and um and so i had to get to a, i i went through a process with my counselor called the ultimate journey and it's um it's like inner child healing and i just went back through each stage of my life and kind of talked myself through why i made those decisions mm-hmm. um and was able to walk out a fully integrated, healthy person where I didn't have to leave any part
0: of my past behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that made it a lot more comfortable. So it sounds like the writing process, mm-hmm. and it, you had done a lot of healing mm-hmm. prior to writing the book, but it sounds like the writing process was very healing, was another catalyst for your healing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah, that's awesome. So I want to back up. And set the stage for your story. Sure. So you talk about you were first introduced to sexually explicit material when you were five. Mm -hmm. How did this shape your life for the next 23 years?
1: So... It's really interesting because when you're a child, you don't think it's doing anything to you. You just assume, like, everybody's been introduced to this. Um, You talk about things that you think everybody's talking about. You do things that you think is normal for, like, an 8-year-old to do. So looking back – I mean one thing that I know that happened is I'm I'm 5 years old and I'm like I have sexually explicit dreams the rest of my life that I can't escape from wow. because of of visualizations from the movies that my mom had me watch like I don't get a choice of whether I get to see that in my sleep and so to have dreams like that when my hormones weren't even supposed to get started um was really embarrassing growing up and the other thing that I find interesting is that when I was eight years old, uh, as I mentioned in my story, you know, my mom not only introduced us to pornography, but other movies that really glamorized the sex industry, which was like Pretty Woman. And oh, people yes. think like, oh, what a fairy tale ending. This guy like rescues this prostitute off the street or woman who's prostituting off the street and, and she gets her happy ending. And so here I am, eight years old, trying to escape the chaos, the abuse, my mom's suicide attempts, um, just trying to start a new life for myself. And I think like I'm, I take my sweater and I make it into a skirt – um, so that, like, maybe somebody will take me in and keep me forever. Oh, wow. And it's like, at the time, I had no idea that maybe those things were connected, but, like, by eight years old, I was already using my sexuality, hoping that, that someone
0: would save me. Yeah, that you can earn love or find mm-hmm. love. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and and familial love. Like, not yeah. even, you know, Yeah, eight years I'm not
0: looking to get married. I just... <laughs> Need a savior, <laughs> right? Right, because your home life was pretty traumatic. Yes. Yeah. Um, so as you grew, you you chose to enter the sex industry. Is that mm-hmm. yeah? Why did you choose? Is that
1: well? Is that fair? First of all. So it was subtle in the sense that I'm 17 years old and um, I get hired at Hooters. Okay, And so they put me into a swimsuit competition to represent their store. Now, while I'm working there, you know, I find that there are acceptable ways to sell sex and there are not acceptable ways to sell sex. And basically, the acceptable ways were um, prostituting on the side, but you can't, you can't work at strip clubs. And then it was nude magazines. So certain pornography was Okay. Okay. So when when I went into the swimsuit competition, the winner wins a layout in Playboy magazine. And that was acceptable. And that was acceptable. That's an acceptable way of selling yourself for other people's sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. So that became like a lot of our inspiration. It's like we wanted to be one of those Hooters girls that ended up in that magazine. Um, But it was those same girls that introduced me to prostitution. And it was those same girls that we all ended up... Um, answering a models wanted ad for a local tanning salon and that's where I ended up meeting um, a a lovely beautiful classy woman introduced me to this very classy looking man who had alcohol shots of alcohol on his table I'm 18 by that point and he was the one that um, wanted to take my modeling career a step further and that ended up leading into prostitution which ended up leading into pornography later
0: Wow, does that often happen that modeling yes. leads to prostitution? Yes, that is a
1: big um, ploy scam. I don't know how how to put it. So what happens is they look for women who really like attention, right? Um, and and you'll even see in like mainstream movies that like show glimpses of like porn producers and they. They go to, the, like, the high school campus, and they're like, you know, have you ever thought of modeling? And and they're so excited. Like, they think, like, oh, my gosh, like, this will pay for college. And right, and, and, and it's fun, and it seems innocent. Right. It does seem innocent. Um, and then after a while, what happens is depending on what your vulnerabilities are, it could be attention It's like, okay, so the modeling work stops coming in. So how far are you willing to go to make yourself like famous, to make people recognize you? Mm -hmm. Or if you have vulnerabilities like addictions, um, trying to, you know, get away from home, stuff like that, it's like, okay, the modeling jobs aren't coming in, but here's how I can get you a new life. And that is a very,
0: very common way to traffic women. Wow. So then... You were introduced to it at seventeen, eighteen, mm-hmm. and but you kept, but you chose it. Is that? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, at that point, so I was actually like honored. Uh, yeah, to work at yeah. Because I
1: thought like, well, this is wonderful, and I had no idea that it was like it was going to be my gateway into a life of selling sex, and then after. Like, after one incident happens, like, there's just really no turning back because you're so demoralized. And it just started with wearing some skimpy outfit and getting mm-hmm. a little bit of attention and serving some buffalo wings to right. to full-blown yeah. s- sex industry career. And then you're like, how did, how did I get here? I was just a waitress.
0: Yeah. So how did you see yourself? Then, did you see yourself as a victim or as just a woman who was advancing her career? It definitely wasn't
1: an advancement. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, th- there was a certain point, so you know, from prostitution to pornography, it became more of a career. And I'll tell you more about that thought process um, later. But um, so I didn't. I didn't see myself as a victim at Hooters. Okay. Because, like, I just thought, like, I'm. Like, you know, I'm 17. I'm, like, about to go off to college. Like, this seems like a great college job. Um, but just how sneaky that whole situation was with that woman who was, like, offering us modeling jobs to introducing us to this man. And, and then by then, like, I was already, like, full-blown alcoholic, And, um, and this guy came in my life every time, like my life was in crisis. So like I'm alcoholic, I'm I'm getting introduced to drugs. Like he, like there were acceptable drugs that he would give me and then there were non-acceptable drugs. And so my addiction like would take me so far and he would come in and rescue me like anytime I was about to go to jail or needed to get away from like an abusive boyfriend. And so that part, like you do feel Like, that's really interesting that he came in, like, at those times to prey on me when he knew I had no other options that looked better.
0: Right. Kind of like that savior you were looking for when you were eight years old. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then what happened? What happened next? So from there, what the transition looked like is,
1: you know, I'm... I'm just trying to stay out of jail at this point. I'm on the run from some really scary exes and stuff like that. And he tells me he can make me a star. Okay. And, and I'm like, and my thought process was, well, I can stay in this hotel where he's standing outside with a gun. And every half an hour, a stranger is knocking at my door. And I could possibly end up murdered and nobody would know where to find me. Or I can take him up on this offer and have him train me to be in pornography, send me out to a state where I don't know, but at least there will be cameras and there will be witnesses. So if something happens to me, the world will know. And that was my thought process for advancing my career at that point.
0: From moving from illegal prostitution to into the pornography. the legal sex trade. Yeah, Yeah. the legal sex trade. Walk us through the next steps of your journey then, what was it like to work in the legal sex trade? Mm -hmm. And how were you kind of feeling and coping with that? What's interesting about like the legal sex
1: trade is, uh, and I found this with addiction as well. It's so interesting. So if you do one type of drug, it's frowned upon by other addicts who do that drug a different way or or a different drug, right? And it's the same thing with the sex trade. It's like th- this is acceptable, this is not acceptable, this is dirty, this is glamorous. Like there's a lot of like really misconceiving things. Okay. So
0: rules within the industry itself. Yes, yeah. yes,
1: and and in the world, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I go into this, and I'm like, okay, I'm in Los Angeles. Like they, uh, one of the things that they do is they they start to introduce you to famous people. They take you um, around in limos and, uh, you're, you're staying in mansions and stuff like that. And so you're thinking like, how far will I go to keep this lifestyle? Because it certainly looks better than my life on the street. Right. And, um, but the thing is, 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 is you're still a prostitute, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for me and for a lot of women that I know in the industry, we just kind of take that and we run with it. And um, our only source of empowerment is being able to, to control it just a little bit. Um, and, and there's not much that you can control yeah. because if you deny certain things, um, you won't get work. And so you have to really, really make like you're enjoying like you, even the most violent of acts because that's what's selling now. Um, because people can see people making love on their regular television channels now and so they need like shock factor and stuff like that and so you're having to compete in that environment and you have to get into a mentality of like if i'm going to survive in here i better figure out how to how to do this well um and make it look like i want to be here and so you 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 do you yeah make it look like you like it's the greatest job in the world and um, meanwhile, like you're, you're getting tested every couple of weeks for STDs. Um, you know, there's HIV quarantines that break out and, and like, you're literally putting your life at risk and they won't let you use condoms. And, um, you know, even in, in some of the more like, like violent stuff, like you have these physical problems and they just like you just have to keep going just anyways keep going, and yeah. and you have to follow like whatever the director says and you're on pain pills like to cope with with that and in and out of like emergency rooms from
0: different things that that aren't so sexy that you're not seeing on film. Right, like the real the real life is right. totally different from what you're seeing on film or in a magazine right. or yeah. things like that. You mentioned control earlier, Mm -hmm. what kind of control did you have or did you think that you had? So when
1: I first went in, I didn't think I had any control at all. It was like, I was owned by a pimp and now an agent, which is a glorified pimp. Mm -hmm. And so now like I've got 20 to 30% of anything I make is going out to these people who are managing me. And so I've got to do whatever they tell me because when they get angry, it's like really scary. And, and again, like, I'm trying to stay off the street, so, like, mm-hmm. whatever they tell me goes. Um, but the thing is, it's like, like, it was so bad that when the camera wasn't on my face, like, I would cry in my pillow. And um, and I had somebody, like, walk off set because he's like, I can't continue to do this to her. But it's like, this was my job. I mm-hmm. had to figure out how to do this. And so I didn't really think I had any control because they wanted to put me with the most violent scenes um, because I was like this tiny little girl and that was like, like they just thought it was awesome to see how much um, they could put me through. That's terrible. So what happened is I actually ended up going under contract with a company, um, which was my saving grace because I didn't have to work as much. Um, I was guaranteed income, I was guaranteed work. And I was able to choose um, which partners I could work with that wouldn't be um, so hard on for the most part, depending on like what country you're shooting in, because there's just different violent factors in different countries. But um, And so that was like my sense of control uh, or taking back control was was being able to participate in, okay, if this is going to be my life, this is – how much violence I can tolerate?
0: Define really scary for us. She said when they got angry, it was really scary. So it didn't take much for me to know. Um, there's
1: there's like a glazed over look that a man can get like right before something really bad happens, and it only took me seeing that look once. Okay. And uh, and knowing that if I didn't fix this, like when it comes to their money. Okay. If, if I didn't fix this, this could be my life or my friend's life. And it was all I needed. To... Like literally your life? Yeah. Wow. It, it was all I needed. That, like it was just that one temper change and glazed over look. And I was like, this is serious business. I'm not going to mess with this. Wow. Now in the industry, it's a little bit different because... It's it's a little more organized. Some of the stuff, like, like I just never thought anything of, you know, and when they go and collect money and,
0: and stuff like that. Not a lot I can say on air. So. Right. You didn't know a different yeah. life because this had yeah. been what you'd seen from the time you were a yeah. little girl yeah. and then just continued to be introduced to. Right. Yeah. And so th- that kind of...
1: Um, intimidation I was used to. And it was just like, you just didn't ask any questions. And all all you know is is people get their money. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. They figure out how to get their money.
0: Yeah. And how old were you when you entered the sex industry? I was still 18 at the time, the first time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. So you were in the industry for how long?
1: Until... Um, so that would have been around 2001 until 2010, so.
0: Okay, about nine. Nine, ten years. Yeah. yeah. What led you to the point that your breaking point where you were like, I have to get out of this, I have to make a change? A couple things. Uh, it was probably
1: threefold depending on, on which part of the industry I was currently immersed in. The, the performing part, it was, um, I was tired of not being able to eat. Uh, I was so hungry all the time, and, and people were always taking pictures. And so um, I, I, can, I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. I just remember thinking, like, gosh, like, I would love to put clothes on. Like, what would it be like to live a life with clothes on? Um, the other thing, part of that was I had never been out. like Like, I hadn't gone out on a date, like a respectable date. And mm-hmm. so what was it like to go out with somebody and not wonder like are are they gonna use me for sex? Are they gonna you know, are are they just here to pay me for mm-hmm. this or
0: Which you did they like,
1: you know? Yeah, that was a, a really tough one. Um so I just didn't date. <laughs> I just became my character and um and kinda hid behind her to to avoid life. And then uh as far as leaving the industry altogether I had a fan drive from Georgia to California to have me sign his DVD collection. And, you know, not thinking anything was wrong with that. I'm super flattered. He even stopped by my hometown, got got me my favorite cookies. Wow! Um, so this guy, you know, like, he, he was really following me. And, again, not alarmed. Um, and so – but everybody else was like, this is kind of a big deal, kind of scary situation. Well, he went back home. And, um, and his wife had called me the next week and told me how they didn't know where he was at. He just disappeared. He took off with like that he drained their entire savings account to come meet me. And, um, when he came home, he was just distraught because he couldn't process that I was an actual human being. So here, here's this broken man coming home to his wife and she's just like, okay, like this has to stop. And... Um, tries to talk him out of, like, you know, turning on his, like, web chats and, and to stop the pornography and all of that. And he, he took a gun and he shot himself. And so wow. now he's got, like, he left behind a wife and grieving children all over his porn addiction. And that was when I realized, like, like this, this isn't helping anybody. Like, this, mm-hmm. this is destroying people. Mm-hmm. I mean, this man took his life because his addiction was so bad. Yeah. And even when the addiction isn't bad, like just what it, what I've seen it do in relationships and marriages and just how humiliated people feel and the shame and the um, the torture that it brings. I, I just, I had no idea, you know, because I was just trying to make a living.
0: Yeah. That was the first time you realized what it did to other people. Yes. Yeah. Do you think there's often a disconnect between um, people who view pornography realizing that they're actually viewing human beings. Absolutely. And I, I think the
1: language that we use is, is helpful because they say like, you know, like I'm not purchasing an actual person. and I'm like, no, like me and my friends we're, were actual people. And see what happens is like, here I am, what I'm almost 10 years out of the industry and people are still paying money to the people who purchased me to begin with. And, and I have no choice in that because I was 18 and I signed over my rights. Mm-hmm. And so people um, continue to use me without my consent because of the state of mind I was when I was 18 years old and just trying to survive. Wow. And so that's really frustrating. I do think there's a huge disconnect in, um, in what people like call trafficking and then what they call acceptable forms of purchasing
0: somebody else. When did you start So those were the three things that happened Mm -hmm. that made you realize, I need to change. So then what was your first step to trying to make a change?
1: My first step was, um, so I had stopped performing, but I still worked in the industry. When that guy came, I was done performing, but I was still signing autographs. I was still doing tours. Um, So I wasn't actually like... I wasn't in the movies anymore, but I was still selling myself through my movies and trying to, like, profit as much as I could off of that. But um, I was working in the office, and I ended up becoming the girl that preys on other people. Okay. Um, So thinking, like, well, at least I'm not doing this anymore, but now, like, I've got girls in my office who – um, can't get any work in porn anymore and so I'm setting them up um, in strip clubs with with people that are escorting them and prostituting them out they're going to brothels and so now I've become that person that either lures girls into the industry or sells them back out and and what was interesting is is other women wanted wanted to be like me they were like I want to do what she did like like she's making a name for herself without selling herself. And so it was like these small little steps, but still very distorted. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted a better name. And so I went back to school and uh, went back to school for holistic health and started training under a trainer um, who did like orthopedic specialties. And I got to work with like disabled people. and, And I just really fell in love because, you know, by then my body had already been through so much trauma that. Like, I had to go to her. Um, And when she helped me manage, like, the chronic pain that I was living with without medications and stuff like that... I realized like I wanted to help other people
0: yeah.
1: and it was a long, it was a long road to that because it was like, well, how do I, how do I start over? Because there's a lot of people that will like say like, get out of the industry. Porn is bad. Porn is sinful, but like nobody's there to walk you through. Okay. Well, how do I make a new life? Right. What else do I do? Because now I have this education and I've got to start over and nobody's giving me a business loan. And, and so that was a really hard process mm-hmm. to go through and mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's part of what led me into Refuge for Women is because all these people wanted to help, you know, people be free of their addictions, but who's helping the girls right. and the guys to to start a life after that so they're not
0: – so that never becomes an option again. Tell me about your journey because you mentioned in the book um, the eating disorders, your struggle with addiction, mm-hmm. um, and then you came to Refuge for Women. But you took some steps before you got to Refuge for Women, too, attending church and things yeah. like that. It's interesting to be—to
1: say, like, yeah, I got sober while I was still in the sex industry because cocaine and alcohol are so rampant and uh, acceptable as well as uh, pain pills and stuff like that. But um, it was really—like, I needed to get sober because, like— like, I was just passing out places, and now I was, like, this public figure, and, and people were, like, trashing me online. And, and so I had to, like, take myself seriously somehow, and, um, and I got into recovery, and the, the only thing that I did is, is I was honest with one person about everything.
0: Wow, and, and that's all it took. That was the first step, not all it took.
1: Yeah, that was that was the first step because what happened is as I as I continued through recovery and I started working these steps and I was honest with a sponsor, it was like, you know, here was this person I didn't have to hide my other life. Like she knew I was in the industry. She's like, just don't pick up a drink no matter what. And as long as I continued to do that through gaining a conscious awareness and contact with God and being honest with one person, like every year I was able to see like the layers that were were keeping me from the center of that. So at the same time, I also knew somebody who was going to church that um, was a former performer. And I asked if she, if she wasn't embarrassed if she would take me to <laughs> church. And, um, you know, because I already told everybody in the industry that I was a Christian because... I knew that Jesus died for me, too, and yes. I had accepted that. I, I had no idea that I could be free from my life, though. I just knew that Jesus died for me, too. I wasn't exempt from what he did on the cross, and that was the only thing I knew and the only thing that I could put together. So I profess Christianity like no other. I'm like, Jesus died for you. He died for you. He died for me. Like, I was an evangelist, and people were very confused. Um, but, you know, that's what we do. Like, we're we're accountable to what we know, and that's yeah. what I knew, and I made sure to share it. <laughs> and, um, and so I started going to church, and I would come back, and I would talk to, like, the distributors and buyers, and I'd tell them, like, what I was learning on my spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. And I'd go to these conventions, and right after, I'd go to, like, a church retreat. And I wasn't, like, two-faced. It was just I was in this process of transition yes. and being pursued by God. And, um and he was very gentle and gracious with me as I mm-hmm. figured out how to g- get out. Yeah. Yeah. When did you realize that he had found you? To be honest, like, like he'd always been there in my okay. life. And um, and I'm not really sure how because, like, even when my mom was alive, like, I talked to him. I talked to him all the time. Mm-hmm. When I was on the street doing drugs, I was so honest with him. Um 've I've always been real honest about prayers and what I need, and some mm-hmm. of those things were not needs. Um, yeah. but, but I was honest with him because, like, I never felt like he left me. I just didn't know how I like I had no discipleship. I had no one to show me a better way to live, um, not for the sake of morality, but for the sake of freedom you know they say freedom is not the the right to make choices freedom is the ability to make choices that keep you free and i couldn't make those choices yes um and so yeah i like he came into my life early on and he never left me and to be honest and this i don't know where this stands with people's doctrines and theologies and stuff but like i felt like a joseph because i was trapped in this prison of the industry and yet there was just enough favor that helped me get to the next step Mm -hmm. and the next step and while they weren't like good decisions like I was able to break free um and I mean just to find favor in the oddest and darkest of places like I felt like he was really helping me to work my way out even though it wasn't like this clean
0: hard and fast break Mm -hmm. for sure Yeah. yeah How did you then get to Refuge for Women? Because you were kind of taking steps, as you talked about, going to church, Mm -hmm. things like that. You know, taking little steps, little by little. But then there came a day that you packed your bags and left for Kentucky in Refuge for Women. Yeah. So how did you get there? Um, So I had
1: been out of the industry almost a year, I think. Yes. Maybe maybe more than that. Um, And... You know, I had just left like a, a relationship that was unhealthy, which was my next savior. So my saviors went from, from a pimp to a producer to a distributor. Those were my three saviors. Yeah. Until finally, it was God. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what would happen is I, I would go to church on Sunday. I'm part of this church plant team. Like I'm on fire for God. I'm helping people stay sober. I've got five years of sobriety under my belt. I'm using everything I can. And offering it back to him, but I didn't, like, have a will to live anymore, and I still didn't know how to interact with other human beings. And so people um, would tell me that they're, like, my fans, and I didn't know whether to be ashamed or proud or or what. And then I did try to start dating, and I slipped back into old habits so fast, uh, and I was so scared that I was going to lose this guy that mm-hmm. I resorted to thinking that maybe he wanted this other girl and not me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I realized, like, if I don't get help with this codependency, this addiction to men, this, like, you know, all of that, then I'm going to end up back in the industry because, like, I'm really failing at everything else. Mm. And um, and I just remember, uh, like, telling the devil each night, like, you've won. Like, oh, you've yeah. won. Like, I I don't have it. Like, I can't do this. And so, like, I go to church on Sunday, and I feel useful, and I feel connected, and then I leave, and I don't know how to live. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, it's just, I, I needed people to re-raise me as an adult, and, like, a rehab wasn't going to do that. Like, I didn't need to get clean and sober, though most most of the times we do, Um I had a program that helped me do that. I needed to learn how to relate to other human beings in a non-sexual way um, and be able to trust what it looked like when people weren't going to use me for sex and figure out friendships and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And and Refuge helped me to do that.
0: Yeah. How long were you in Refuge for Women?
1: Um, It was a year program when I went through it. Uh, I was seven months in the house and then – I had a host family that I ended up staying with for like two years, and they included me in their family, mm-hmm. and I got to see authentic faith. Not, I mean, they were not preaching the Bible at me. They were not sitting here telling me that my doctrine was wrong. They simply loved well. Like, they loved wow. God. They yeah. loved each other. And, and it was evident by the fruit that was coming out of their lives. And so that to me was attractive and and i was like well how do i how do i live life like that and so you know for me i think i imitated people who imitated christ until i could learn how to imitate christ myself
0: yeah that's discipleship what did what did you learn in refuge for women because you mentioned needing to learn how to relate to other human beings what mm-hmm. were some of the things that you learned during your time there
1: um A huge one was boundaries. There's probably like um, six whole months just on what healthy boundaries look like. And you got to be careful because like, you know, you can get boundaries for your boundaries and you just become like selfish and stuff like that. So there's (laughs) a line where it's like, okay, this is a healthy boundary. I had some areas in my life where I had guardrails around those boundaries because I wanted, um, after really meeting Jesus and knowing like how much he loved me, I didn't want to settle for anything else than what looked like that, mm-hmm. and so I had to make sure I didn't have blinders on. And so I did have some boundaries for my boundaries <laughs> um, in certain areas, and it and it worked really well for me. Um, we did like trauma classes. There was dating classes. It was like, so if you're dating a guy and you go back to his place and there's chainsaws like all around, like that's a red flag. For and sure. We're like, huh? Would have never seen that coming, you know, because to us, like, we just thought that's how people lived. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, it was really funny learning, like, what dating looked like and knowing, you know, what conversations are appropriate. And um, and you have to be careful because, like, even with Christian godly, I'm not going to say godly, even with Christian men, um, you know, not everybody's healthy. And so even, so just saying that you're a Christian, I mean, look at me. I said I was a Christian on every like nude porn magazine. (laughs) And um, so I know that people can be in different states in their walks. And so learning how to discern, this is somebody who's healthy for me. Mm -hmm. And this is what friendship looks like. And this is what integrity looks like. And I got to learn those things because I went to a place where God's voice was the loudest over even the people who loved me. And I really needed you, – you can't hear his voice all the time when you're not in a place of safety, and I had safety yes. for a whole year.
0: Which is something you hadn't had no. your whole life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To be able to, like, fall asleep and not, like, wonder, like, is somebody going to hurt me? Is somebody going to come home drunk? Are they going to be yelling? Are they going to be slamming stuff? Um, are they going to come in my room? Like, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Yeah. It was so refreshing. Yeah. So then after Refuge for Women and – your time with that family, then you came to Asbury Seminary? Yes. So turns out my mentor
1: lived about seven minutes from here. Okay. And I kept seeing the sign for Asbury Seminary, and I'm like – and I felt like like I should go there. <laughs> um, and I thought, like, I love – like, I'm in my Bible all the time. I'm in Bible study fellowship. Like, it's my favorite book. It's yeah. my favorite author. Um, I was like, what would it be like to go to school and study the Bible? And um, – and I really didn't even know schools existed like that, and so I just started the application process, and um, I applied for a life experience exception because like every like my holistic school had shut down, and so like I had credits here and I couldn't get transcripts here right. and, and so it was like right before I got my bachelor's degree and and so I just remember, um, you know, hearing Bob Goff and, and reading his book and how he sat outside of law school and said, you have the power to let me in. And so I just kept <laughs> knocking on the door and said, like, I, you know, I, I'm not like here for a career, but I, like, I will use every bit of education that you give me and every bit of transformation, like, it will affect every single person I serve from here on out. And I will be a grateful steward of what you can offer me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they worked with me until I got in I even got some scholarships and I graduated debt free. And, um, yeah, I just, I can't, I can't believe I got to go here.
0: Yeah. When did you graduate? I graduated in 2017. And you had a degree in spiritual formation, Formation. is that right? Yeah. Yeah. How perfect. I know. I
1: didn't think so. They kept pushing it on me. I'm like, what is that going to do on a resume? And I kept hearing like, this isn't for your resume. Um, But it's like it's formation for the sake of others. And a lot of times that that gets left out. It's like, you know, all this self-formation and self-growth and like all this stuff. And it's like that only is beneficial if that like ripples out onto the people around you. And so how do we take this formation, this relationship with God that's so authentic um, and comes from a place of gratitude and, and turn it into a way of life that just affects everybody
0: around you. I want to ask how how you are letting that... Because you're very open mm-hmm. about your story. Your book is very open. Um, we're friends on social media too. Mm-hmm. So And I mean, we're friends off social media. So we're friends in real life. So you're, We're real friends. We're real friends. But we're <laughs> Facebook official friends too. So I see your post and you're just... Very open. Mm -hmm. Is that one of the ways that you see of letting your own formation, you know, affect other people?
1: Yes. So Facebook was a hard thing for me to consider coming back on because there was a lot of people that kept um, putting up fake profiles, pretending to be me. Uh, There's quite a bit of stuff I had to combat with that. And so when I got on Facebook, it really had to be a place where I could stay connected to all the people that I've encountered during different seasons of my life. Um, and, and be able to share with them this journey that I'm on in good times and bad, because, uh-huh. you know, there, there's sometimes there's things that God doesn't remove. And so like, I want people to see like, like my faith isn't just cause he's saying yes all the time. Right. Like I, I get a lot of really painful, hard, embarrassing, humiliating no's that I can expect because I live on this side of the curse. Um. I live on, the, like we live in a fallen world, like all of my deliverance is not yet, but some of it I've gotten glimpses of. And so I have this this place where I get to share, this is what my faith looks like when God says no, and He is still good, mm-hmm. and I'm still going for it, and and this is why it's worth it because of who He is. And then it's like, and this is where I get to give God praise and glory because, you know, He said yes, and this is what my faith looks like, and... Um, being able to share that like like there is hard times there are consequences you know with the PTSD and stuff like that um, and so I have people from all different parts of my walks that that um, are part of my circle and they get to see this and they and they get to ask me questions and um, it's a really beautiful ministry I get to have and like Facebook has been a, a really positive thing for my mm-hmm. life and mm-hmm. for, um, the lives of those that I get to stay connected with that maybe haven't said yes to God yet because they're like, I don't know. I don't know if he's for me. Right. And yeah. so I just like I simply get to just ripple out my faith and and be there when they're ready to ask questions and yeah. um and just love them even even if
0: they don't. Like yeah. It sounds like you get to live like your mentors family mm-hmm. and just loved you for two two solid years. I'm sure they still love you, but you no longer yeah. live with them. So it's yeah. a little bit different, but you get to live that for other people. How have you seen God restore your relationships?
1: So the cool thing is is like like my dad who I grew up with, um, he found God when I was seeking God and he okay. got married and they both love God and they're continuing like their own formation process. And That's so awesome. like You know, like, while we have different, like, healing paths, a lot of people in my family, um, they just rather not look back. They just want to move on. Uh It's really painful for them. I mean, that's Um, fair. It is. Absolutely. And I respect that. And I had to get to a place where it was like, I'm not going to force you to heal, you know, (laughs) um, for my sake. But but that's just not how I feel like God's asked me to live. Um, Because there's a lot of people out there still struggling. And so I want to offer... Um, the good, bad, and the ugly. If it helps them to mm-hmm. to get out, but so yeah, they um, they've got like this new family, and um, the person that I was engaged to, um, his family that owned the porn distribution companies and the production companies, um, they walked away from it all. They wow, <laughs> they're like really. Um, they're, like, beach evangelists and, you know, leading Bible studies. And so that's really beautiful to watch. We're still connected with them. And I've just learned how to do friendship differently, um, knowing that, like, you know, when I first got out, I thought, like, everybody had to be accountable to everybody. And and that's just not, like – like, there's time. Like, friendships involve time and trust and experience and – um and so I've learned how to have, like, really deep, authentic friendships. And um, and I have a beautiful relationship with my husband who I met here. Um, we had a great dating relationship. He has nothing close to a background like mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but he believed God, and he saw the work that God did in me, and that's all he needed to see, and yeah. our backgrounds didn't need to align. And so we had a beautiful dating relationship uh, with those guardrails, Um, not because it was like, it was something we had to do, but it was something we wanted to do. Not only like we knew that our decisions in singleness, our decisions in dating, um, as well as our decisions now were going to affect our future relationship and our future family. Mm -hmm. And so it was like an honor for us to say, you know what, we're not going to go here because here's how we want to grow. And, um, and seriously to have a man that had his own godly values, that I didn't have to worry about, like, are you going to go to church today? Or, like, I didn't have to worry about him bringing something up that I was going to be uncomfortable with right. physically. Right. Like, it just wasn't an option for us. That's not that's not how we wanted to live and right. honor God. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not because it was a rule, but because, like, we just wanted to stay in the center of that freedom and that love. Yeah. And, um, and now... We're three and a half years married and pregnant with twins after a lot of no's. (laughs) Um, But my God is great and he's walking us through this. And yeah, um, so we're super excited to, I mean, that's going to be a whole other healing journey is, you know, I didn't, I didn't see healthy family growing up. So I'm going to have to learn from scratch, like what mothering Mm -hmm. looks like Mm -hmm. and how God would have me
0: parent and. I'm sure you'll be a great mother. I have no doubt. (laughs) Well, I know for sure Matt's going to be a great dad. Yeah, well. And I'm going to do my best. That's all you can do, Deanna. Yes. Can I ask you about your wedding day and what that that meant to you? Wedding day or honeymoon? (laughs) Let's start with wedding day. Okay. (laughs) We can get to honeymoon later. Yeah, my wedding
1: day was like, you know, when I got baptized – You know, I I know that I didn't need to be Mm re-baptized, like I didn't, like it didn't negate the work that God had already done, but there was just this different understanding from the first time I was baptized where God offered himself to me to the second time I was baptized. And I, I really offered myself to God. And mm-hmm. I knew who it was that I was going to follow the rest of my life. Yeah. That was like my first wedding, my first marriage. Okay. Yeah. Um, the people who were in the water with me were like bridesmaids. And they're the ones that continue to point me back to my commitment with God. And they happen to be like the same people who were at my wedding. <laughs> oh, and, I love that. And so for Matt and I, like our wedding was like this celebration uh, coming together before God. Um, I woke up that morning and I opened my Bible and like I read about, um, I think it was, don't take my degree back, but it was either Caleb or Joshua. I think it was Caleb <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and he was going to collect his inheritance. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, how interesting, like here I am, like I believed God and I didn't settle for anything less than what I truly believed he had in store for me and and it was like me going to collect on a promise that God made to yeah. me um and I, and I, I know that's an interesting concept you know like um but like I truly believed that he was gonna show me love in this way and I was I was intentional about um, who I had in my life and and all of that, and and I was vulnerable, and I put myself out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't expect him to just like fall out of the sky, um, and and here it was like I, I literally got to start a new family,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it was a new chapter, and um, and we got to give everybody communion because with our belief, like we just believe like, like Jesus offered that for everybody, and. Um, and, and out of that gratitude for what he did, you know, comes how we live. But we were able to to offer communion to every single person at our wedding. That's beautiful. What
0: did it mean to you to wear white on your wedding day?
1: I just, so I, did, I had done like a testimony for church a while back. And there was this little girl in a white wedding dress. And there's all these traditions. And I don't know much about traditions. I didn't know anything <laughs> about traditions before coming here. And, um, and there was this tradition that like, like a girl couldn't wear white if she had been like, I don't know, tainted or, you know, had had sex before and this and that. But the thing is, is when, when I was baptized in 2012, um, I felt brand new and, and I lived in a way that was consistent with that. And I really felt like God, um, had washed all of that away and so for me to show up in white pure as can be and now like you know like my my husband was pure Mm -hmm. and and here i am like i got to offer myself like i think i had five years five years of just really living in the center of um of what that looked like and i was like i got to offer myself to my husband as a pure bride Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Jesus made me. And it was like, all that stuff, it just, it fell away. I just remember, you know, like how important it was for me to wear a white dress because I knew that's how Jesus saw me. And there yes. was no conflict in my mind whatsoever. Absolutely not.
0: How have you since coming to know Jesus come to understand sexuality and intimacy? Well, before Jesus, um, and one of the things that led
1: me to the refuge was I, w- I was in a sex industry recovery meeting, and they brought up the word intimacy. And, and they used like phrases like, into me you see. And that was like terrifying <laughs> to me um, because I didn't even know it was in there. And I had always done relationships backwards. Um, but what I, what I came to discover about Jesus is that, and God, uh, is that, like his he has these good gifts, and it's not like like this gift is is bad in the sense of the word like like food is not bad and like work is not bad. Um, but there's a lot of good gifts that he gives us that when we don't um when when we don't understand like how best to use them um, can be very damaging to us and so like living with my ex that was really painful like that was like a divorce and 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 everything that I went through with every other person like that was super painful and and I don't think like God was up there like mad at me and ready with like a punishment he was just like man I had so much more for you and so um the beautiful thing is is when I met Matt I asked him you know what his values were in in sexuality and singleness and because I'm not here to change anybody's mind um and we have pretty specific values about, like, our sexuality is something that honors God and honors each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the decisions that I made in singleness and the decisions that he made in singleness and then dating, like, those were things that we got to to honor God with later. Um, and so sex became this beautiful expression of the trust and the intimacy that we had built ahead of time. Yes. And so it's our way of coming together in agreement, renewing our covenant with God and with each other in a way that's not shameful in a way that we only get to do with each other just like God intended and so you know thinking about Jesus in the desert and how like Satan tempted him with all these things that were already going to be his but it wasn't the time and timing is everything um you know because God has these great plans and these great gifts and if if we take them out of time, it just, it just doesn't have the same fruit, and it can be really damaging. Mm-hmm. And just trusting, like, he does know what's best, and it is good. Um, but it's really painful when it's done out of context. Yeah, for sure. How would you define wholeness now? So for me, that was a tricky one because, um, you know, I always heard sayings like, become the person, the person you're... Per- Uh, sorry become the person the person you're looking for is looking for (laughs) and they always you know um try to get you to become like your most whole self like don't bring a broken self into a relationship a friendship this and that but the thing is is like with me and god and self um (laughs) not that there's three of us but um (laughs) like we were as whole as we could be together, um, you know, for that season. Right. And so what happens is is so then I start dating and and I let somebody in and he becomes this like reflection of things that I didn't know were inside of me because nobody had gotten that close to me. Right. And so learning that that wholeness looks different each season. Like we're gonna continue going through refinement. And it doesn't mean like we weren't whole before. It's just like this different layer and this different beauty that comes out of it. And um knowing that we do bring our best self in that season. Yeah, for sure. Um, but but God's got more. Yeah and so just being ready for that.
0: Yeah. So I'm gonna borrow a question from a podcaster that I listen to on the That Sounds Fun podcast with Annie F. Downs, and she likes to ask people this question, and I thought it was really good, so I'm going to borrow it. Um, what have you learned about God this year that you didn't know about Him last year? So this year...
1: Um was was a lot of of trials with Matt and I in our fertility experiences after finding out certain things that were, um, that were going to prevent us from having children, and um, but knowing that with with the right kind of help, it was possible mm-hmm. for us to start our family. And, uh, but we got a lot of no's. Um, we went through some serious procedures, a lot of money, um, emotions, prayer, and stuff like that. Um, but a lot of times, like, like what I discover about God is that, you know, when I, when I wanted to get a job, like God wasn't mad that I went on an interview. Right? right. When I wanted to start dating, like I put myself out there and I built like a friend. Like I did like these group activities and I put myself in situations to get to know other people in safe ways. Like I didn't expect him to fall out of the sky. Um, to, to graduate from school, like I showed up and I did my assignments. And so there there's a learning process between what's our part and what's his. And so there was this verse that, you know, taken out of context – um, it's not what he's talking about at all, but it really helped me in thinking about David when he's like, I will not offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Because for us it was about we're gonna put everything on the table. And um and we know like we have a God who empowers other people to use their gifts to help others and to restore us to um different types, states of fruitfulness, right? And so, like, we didn't feel bad about seeking out medical help because we knew that God was going to teach us no matter what. Mm-hmm. And when we put it all on the altar, it was up to God to either sacrifice it or to bless it and and give us some sort of other fruit. And we got a lot of no's in the beginning. Like, we wanted to try, you know, every possible way before coming to, like, our last resort, um, you know, financially, physically, emotionally and stuff. And, and we were willing to get those nos mm-hmm. um, And it was it was really great for us to be able to teach others what faith looked like. Um, because like in Exodus, it talks about like, you need only be still. Um, the Lord will fight for you. Right. And people like forget the next verse where he's like, tell the people to stop crying and move forward. And it's like, there's a time where we step in the water and he parts it. Mm-hmm. And there's a time where, um, you know, like if, if you're going to get out of the boat, you better make sure it's Jesus that's calling you out of the boat. For sure. Um, and so you've got to be able to discern like, like, hey, God, like I'm going to give you everything and I'm going to be bold with this. But whether you say yes or you say no, like you're still my God. And and that's a big deal for us. And mm-hmm. and we did get our yes later. And um, but either way, like like his position in our life doesn't change,
0: mm-hmm.
1: no matter mm-hmm. what offerings we put on the table and how he answers those. Yeah. When are the
0: twins due? April. Right around Easter. That's like just the fulfillment of so many promises right there. Yeah. I want to go back to your book for just a minute because I really loved how at the end you acknowledged the people in your life who had helped you in different ways. And one Mm -hmm. of those people was your mom, which I'll be honest, kind of surprised me after reading some about some of the trauma that her actions had caused you. And you didn't gloss over the scars that she had left you Mm -hmm. with, but you found the good in what she had given you absolutely yeah what was that forgiveness process like for you um for me
1: i i haven't had a hard time with forgiveness because i've just always known that like like no one will like i'll never have to forgive more than i've been forgiven so i've always been free with forgiveness not always safe with it but i've been free with (laughs) it um, but I came to a point in my life where I had to really take an honest look at what are you forgiving her for? Because I just forgave her as a person. I just knew my mom wasn't well. Um, but I never really sat down and looked at like what I was forgiving her for. And so I went through that process and um, and it was good. and the the beautiful part about any process like that is is being able to stay in balance, right? So, you do this inventory and you say, like, these are the things that had happened. This is how it made me feel. I felt humiliated and devalued and unloved and all of those things. But also being grateful and seeing, like, even if this person is not safe for me, they still bear God's image there is still some good in them even if they're not living in a way that is consistent or submitted to him. they mm-hmm. They're like they're they still have great gifts. And so I I really wanted to be able to understand what it's like to honor my mother to be truthful so that other people can can recognize when things are out of place in their life but to still honor my mother and say, "You know what? Like she had an amazing drive." And I have a great work ethic because of her, and she loved animals, and she had a huge heart and I don't know what caused her all of the pain and I don't know how far the alcoholism and the mental illness went back generationally um, but I can have compassion for her mm-hmm. and and so like i'm I'm truly grateful that that God gifted me in such a way. Um, because there's a lot of people that left scars in my life, yeah. but I've, I've never been one to hold out on forgiveness because I'm just, I'm just ready to forgive like when he does. And it doesn't mean I forget, right. you know, and it doesn't mean that we don't have proper things in place that, you know, help keep us safe. Um, but God gave freely to me, and so yeah. I just don't see any reason to not do the same for others.
0: Yeah. Was it hard for you to forgive yourself?
1: Um, So I think that that was probably the more difficult one Um, because you think, like, I had a choice or, like, uh, you you think you were in, like, some sort of control or – but for me, it was really – it came down to if God could forgive me and love looked like what it did on the cross, who am I to say I'm not worth forgiving? It's almost like a prideful arrogance, right? It's like mm-hmm. this, um, we call it in recovery, terminal uniqueness. Like it's for everybody but me. Yeah. And, and, and then you end up going to the grave like that. Um, and so I asked somebody, like I think somebody had asked me one time, like how did you forgive yourself? And for me it just wasn't a question because it was like like I live a living amends And while I can't make right every wrong that I did, I can live in a way that doesn't hurt people anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that is my amends, is living consistent to this new life that God gave me and not making those same decisions now that I'm not ignorant um, to what my choices lead to.
0: One of the first things that I noticed about you when we became friends was um, that you— you love people mm-hmm. and you want to help people. Even when you were living a different life mm-hmm. in the book, it was just super obvious that you wanted to help other people. And you talked about that even in your in our conversation today. Mm-hmm. So when people read your book, what do you hope that they get out of it or receive from it?
1: I think one of the, the greatest compliments that I can receive is that, like, people think I'm lying about my past. Like, uh, and, and not because of my character, but they just can't imagine. My own husband cannot imagine what my life was like when I was a junkie and I was passed out in alleys, and, um, and he serves people, you know, coming in the hospital, and, and he just can't believe that that was my life. And so when, when people hear my story and they're just like, I would have never known that, because I, I, I do get quite a bit of people who are hurting, and they, and, and they say things like, you wouldn't know what pain is and I'm just like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I know that comes from a really painful place, and as we get to know each other, like, all open up about it. Um, and so, what I hope that people get from the book is just knowing, like, no matter how far down the scale you have gone, your experience can benefit others, mm-hmm. and um, I have a life that is unrecognizable today. And that can happen for anybody. Um, Even if God doesn't remove every single situation or circumstance, um, when it comes to the consequences of that lifestyle, our life can still be unrecognizable. Mm -hmm. And that's just amazing to me. And so I wanted to be honest about the good, the bad, the ugly, so that people could see full-on, This, this is what God has brought me from, Mm -hmm. but this is the life that I get to live today. And I know it's like 80% dark and maybe 20% light, you know, it took a while to get out. Yeah. Um, Yeah, for sure. But so are fairy tales, right? And so is the ultimate fairy tale. Like it's a lot of like, oh my gosh, we're going through this again. Oh my gosh, these people are still struggling with the same thing. And then all of a sudden it's like, and then we live happily ever after. And we do. Yeah we do. It's possible. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so I want people to see like you know like that that's a life that's really hard to get out of and so many people in the industry will tell you like there's nothing else we can do after this. So it's life in the brothel, life in the street, overdose, Mm -hmm. suicide. Mm -hmm. And I got told that so much and I don't know how my life's going to end, but I, I've gotten some great purpose out of it so far. Yeah. And I want people to not, um, stay there out of fear that it's not possible to have a new life.
0: After reading the book, I really feel like it just exuded hope. I mean, it was 80% dark, 20% light, but the light was Mm -hmm. so light and the hope that it gave others, it was beautiful. So thank you. So as we wrap up the podcast, we have one question. Well, first of all, I said as we wrap up, is there anything else you want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet?
1: Um, I'll leave you with a question that um Dr. Seitzma gave me in human sexuality, which by the way, like everybody should totally take. Like, what a great class. Um, and he said, like, who are you becoming and how are the choices that you're making right now helping you? to get there. Wow. And I think that's so important because, um, you know, we think of all these things that need to go. Like, like like, we just become aware of all this stuff that is not keeping us in an abiding relationship with Christ. And, um, and it really just takes one next good decision. If I can just make a good decision tonight, maybe I can make another one tomorrow. But for tonight, like let's make a decision that
0: promotes human flourishing and not the destruction of self or others. So now as we wrap up the podcast, we have one question that we ask everybody. It's called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. So what is one practice that can be spiritual or otherwise that is helping you thrive in your life right now? Um, I would say a
1: constant place of returning and remembering. Hmm. Right? Like how many times does it say in the Bible, like, remember, remember me, remember what I've delivered you from, remember how far I've taken you. And, um, because I return to God, like, like we, we do life together. Like we're pretty close, you know, like I, like I really do life with God. Um, but I also am intentional about like in my mornings, you know, I meet him at night. I meet him and and if we continue to meet him every day, we can't get that far off track because he's so good to say, like, "Hey, that's probably not the best. Um, like, I've got better. Let's try this this way." Um, and then the other thing is, is like, in recovery, we just learn um, again how to live in a state of amends, and it's just like. We try not to like injure others or anything like that, but if we do, we're quick to to really recognize our part and and why we may have like reacted out of that and so um just a constant state of being willing and ready um to learn like even those things that like where you're falling short that that might be a stumbling block block to somebody just be willing and ready to listen and Stay humble and teachable. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's... I don't know if that was like one practice. No, it's good. It's so it's like good, the 90 Was
0: it the 96- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've got a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Thank you. Thank you so much, Deanna, for taking the time to share with me and with our listeners today. Your friendship has been and is such a gift to me, and I'm really just grateful for the gift for the gift that that is to me. And I just really appreciate our conversation. Thank Thank you. you. I appreciate it too. Hey y'all, thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Deanna. So very grateful for her honesty and her bravery to share her story so that others can find hope too. I hope you enjoyed hearing about God's redemption, freedom and grace through Deanna's story. Until next time, have a great day and go do something that helps you thrive.